Would you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? And I would like to consider with you there the words found in, in chapter 1, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The, the context here is that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians and he is commending them for their faith, their love, their hope in Christ, which is the result of the gospel coming to them, not as mere words, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The power of God had come upon them in the preaching of the gospel, and the result was that they were imitators of Paul and of the Lord. And in fact, the word of God had sounded forth from these new converts in turn so that they themselves were examples to other believers in the region. And this is the same pattern of life that we see in the Christian today. Our souls are arrested by the power of God in the gospel that results in our lives being conformed to Jesus Christ and in conformity to the lives of other Christians in the church in such a way that we ourselves are examples of Christ to yet other believers. And in the verse we just read, Paul is summarizing the reality of the conversion in the Thessalonians, how they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So you see a profound distinction here. You have idols and you have a living and true God. <clears throat> before, <clears throat> before, men worshipped idols, but now they worship God. You see how plainly it is put here that idolatry is the very antithesis of Christianity. And yet, here we are today in a world that is profoundly idolatrous. Well, what exactly is an idol? Idolatry can, of course, be very obvious, and Scripture is full of those examples of men who are bowing down and calling upon actual physical graven images. But idolatry may be something very subtle. It can be a secret issue of the heart that is not apparent to others. Now, our time together this morning is not intended to be something that causes us to be overly introspective, but I think still it's right for us to consider what the Scripture has to say about this important subject of idolatry. Uh, in, in order to rightly understand what idolatry is, we really shouldn't begin with a discussion of ourselves how we use our time and our resources, whether or not it's sinful to own a television or have a third car, or whether or not it's wrong to fertilize your yard. You know, we have to start with the question of God. We have to ask ourselves, what is God like? 
Who is this living and true God? Because as we will see, idolatry is an issue of worth, of worthiness, of worthfulness. What should we bow down to? What should we invest in? What should we pay homage to? What should consume our thoughts? All these questions are answered if we first start with the single more important question, what is God like? In 1961, A.W. Tozer wrote this, Left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can in some measure control. We need the feeling of security that comes from knowing what God is like, and we think what he is like is a composite of all the religious pictures we have seen, all the best people we have known or heard about, and all the sublime ideas we've entertained. If this sounds strange to modern ears, it is only because we have for a full half century taken God for granted. The glory of God has not been revealed to this generation of men. What is God like? Consider Isaiah 40. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal? Says the Holy One. God is not like anything. What do we see in Deuteronomy 4? So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of any male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and moon and stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. God is not like anything. He presents himself to the children of Israel as one who is formless. He doesn't look like anything you have ever seen or anything that you can ever see with your physical eyes. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father in his deity, comes into the world in human flesh. Yes, but what does Isaiah 53 say of Christ? He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Christ Jesus came into this world in a stall, and that baby developed and grew into a man, and we are told that his appearance, his physical beauty, was nothing that should attract us to him at all. 
the very Son of God, the final word of God to man, is a proclamation that God is not like anything that men value or esteem with their own eyes. What does God look like? He looks like nothing. Where do we worship God? Where do we pray to God? Well, the Christian prays to God in secret, right? Matthew 5. He worships anywhere and everywhere. The fact that we're meeting specifically here in this place is completely irrelevant. God is spirit, and we worship him in spirit and in truth. And yet, those who are outside of Christ, being as diverse, as different as their individual stories might suggest, are all exactly the same in the fact that each and every lost person is one who is attempting to delight in, to rejoice in, to be satisfied in physical things rather than in God. The happiness and contentment of lost people are contingent on the physical realization of their own ideas. Men have possessions that are supposed to be worth something, right? Earthly possessions are ascribed a worthship, an intrinsic value. Well, this old box, this is nothing. You put this on the ground somewhere, who cares if it gets wet in the basement? Oh, but this painting, now this, this is worth something, right? So we put this above the fireplace. Right, so we can see its worthiness, its, its worship, so we can worship it. This is a trap from which even the Christian must struggle to free himself from each and every day. It is the temptation to value physical forms. People worship and pray to things they have and things they make. Isaiah 44 says, Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He exacts a measuring line. He he outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man. Of man, so that it may sit in a house. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. He falls down before it and worships it. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Now, you may think how thankful we must be today that we do not live in such a primitive, superstitious, pagan nation as portrayed by Isaiah. I I would highly doubt that anyone here possesses an Asherah pole or has a statue of Krishna or Ganesha or Buddha in their home. 
But it will not surprise you to consider how people look to faith, look in faith to the strength of their physical possessions all the time. That metaphorically speaking, men bow down before physical things all the time. Men look to their roofs to protect them from the storm. Men look to their new car or their house for a sense of satisfaction and personal accomplishment. Men look to their possessions in general for, for comfort, for relief. Men look to their physical strength and their financial resources as assurances that they are safe. Men bow down before their own minds when making decisions or when justifying their own actions. In fact, it may be that a man does not have actual physical statues of pagan gods because he is his own idol. Men think about themselves, look to themselves, trust in themselves. Men worship themselves rather than the living and true God. Men pray to themselves. Now, now let me think this through. Well, I was up all night long going through this problem, you know, trying to solve it. Calling upon myself, self, how will you deliver me? Pride. Even the liberal philosopher slash poet, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who is hardly a standard for Christian theology, had this to comment on worship. A person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. In the text that I read just a moment ago from Isaiah 44... It's a picture here of a man who raises up a tree from a seedling. He cuts it down when it's grown. Half of it he burns and cooks his dinner over it. The other half he makes into an abomination, an idol. He falls down before a block of wood. He cries out to an inanimate thing that cannot hear him and who cannot, which cannot deliver him. He cries out to it, deliver me, for you're my God. The man has become what he is worshiping. God has given him over. God has smeared over his eyes so that he cannot see, and over his heart so that he cannot understand. His heart is deceived, and the text says that he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie at my right hand? Psalm 115 tells us, Their idols are silver and gold, the works of man's hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear. They have noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but they cannot feel. 
They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Idolatry is delighting in, rejoicing in, being satisfied in. Idolatry is seeking anything other than God himself. Yes, God, God blesses us with certain things to enjoy on earth, but we are not to delight ultimately or in those things or, or serve those things or look to those things for satisfaction in and of themselves. I would suggest to you that if your peace or joy or satisfaction is linked to a physical possession, then that is an idol. Well, let me point out just a few things regarding idolatry. The first thing is that idolatry is shameful. Isaiah 42, 17, They will be turned back and be utterly put to shame who trust in idols, who say to molten images, You are our gods. Idolatry is shameful. Idolatry is defiling. Ezekiel twenty eighteen. Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers or keep their ordinances or defile yourselves with their idols. Idolatry is defiling. Idolatry is a sign of God's judgment. Isaiah 19.3 Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them. And I will, this is the Lord speaking, and I will confound their strategy so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spirits or spiritists. Idolatry is a sign of God's judgment. Idolatry, this is important, idolatry is burdensome. Isaiah 46, the things that you carry are burdensome. A load for the weary beast. Having physical possessions, serving physical possessions is burdensome. They lift it up Upon the shoulder and carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. (laughs) Don't carry your idols. Let God carry you, right? I will carry you. I will bear you. And I will deliver you, Isaiah 46 says. Idolatry is burdensome. Well, if the compassionate offer of God to carry you is not sufficient for you to throw off your idols, hear this. If you do not throw out your idols now, God will take them from you. Idolatry is shameful and defiling and burdensome, 
and it is also futile. Isaiah 2. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. The pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. In that day men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. See, when, when God comes, when the glory of God comes in, idols vanish. Beware of idols of the heart, which can be subtle things. Cast them away from you as an unclean thing. Instead of being defiled by an idol, by the power of God, we can actually defile the idols themselves and scatter them away from us and say, be gone. I would say to you, don't attempt to profit by something in your life that you're convicted is an idol, something you're convicted you're seeking rather than God, something you're delighting in and rejoicing in and looking to for peace and satisfaction other than God himself. Don't attempt to profit by it. Cut it down. Throw it out. Cast it away from you. Whatever it may be. I know a man who had a computer once. It was a stumbling block for him. It had become a source of temptation and idolatry for him, and he was convicted of this. So what did he do? He didn't sell it. He defiled it. He took that computer into the backyard and he burned it. He wanted to be rid of it. He wanted to be done with it. He wanted no profit by it at all. He flung it into the street, as it were, in the words of Ezekiel 7. He flung it away from him. He scattered it as an impure thing. Repentance from idolatry is possible. This is where we started. Idols come in when the glory of God departs. But God is gracious. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. The idol cannot save you, but God hears you. He will save you. Turn to God. Cry to him. When he hears it, he will answer you. Ask God to make real the power of the gospel in your own life so that you can see the infinite value of Jesus Christ who is high and lifted up, that you can flee from idolatry, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, that we can love the Lord our God with all our heart, 
our soul, our mind, and our strength. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Amen.